What's up, guys? This is Ryan. I am here with my friends Nick and Mark, and today we have a very special episode for you. As we stated in the last couple episodes, there is a lot going on in Romans soteriologically, and so we decided to take a break, have some interviews with some experts about the different views of salvation. Last episode, you heard Dr. Michael Horton uh, speak about Calvinism, and this episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Brown, to talk about Arminianism. Marky, Nikki, yeah, no, I, what? somebody tell me about Michael Brown. Somebody tell me about well, his him. name is Michael L. Brown. Sorry, and I'm not. What do you think the L stands for? Michael LSD smoking, <laughs> uh, rock guitar playing. It's true. It's true. Brown. So Michael L. Brown is the founder and president of Ask Dr. Brown Ministries and of Fire School of Ministry. And host of the daily national syndicated talk radio show, The Line of Fire. He also hosts TV show on God TV, METV in Israel and the Middle East, and NRB TV. Dr. Brown holds a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures from New York University and has served as a visiting or adjunct professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in Charlotte, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Fuller Theological Seminary, Denver Theological Seminary, the King Seminary, and Regent University School of Divinity, and he has contributed numerous articles to scholarly publications, including the Oxford Dictionary of Jewish Religion and the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. <laughs> He's a very accomplished man. He is. Dr. Brown is the author of more than 40 books, including Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, The Tragic Story of the Church and the Jewish People, which has been translated into more than 12 languages, the highly acclaimed five-volume series Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, commentaries on Jeremiah and Job, and numerous books on Revival and Jesus Revolution. Dr. Brown is a national and international speaker on themes of spiritual renewal and cultural reformation, and he has debated Jewish rabbis, agnostic professors, and gay activists on radio, TV, and college campuses. He is widely considered to be the world's foremost Messianic Jewish apologist. Yes, yeah, so I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Let's welcome Dr. Brown to the show. Bible Dingers. to go ahead and get right into it and ask you what is arminianism can you give us a general overview of arminianism sure so arminianism draws its name from jacob arminius who was a theologian professor of theology in the netherlands in holland he lived from 1560 to 1609 and he was a calvinist theologian who decided to dig deeper in the text, better understand predestination and things like that. And the more he studied, the more he began to question these things, the more he began to develop an alternative theology that he felt was more based on scripture. And then after he died, his followers continued to develop these things. They were called the remonstrance. And they then came forward with five positions that differed with Calvinistic teaching. 
And that led to the Synod of Dort. So this is in the early 1600s. And all five of the, of the views of Arminius were rejected. And out of that was formulated what are called the five points of Calvinism. So these, these doctrines existed in Calvinistic teaching, but were formulated as the five points in response to, to Arminius and his views. And, um, and then the Arminian pastors were considered heretics and were persecuted, etc. So it was, it was a pretty strong negative reaction. But then that theology, especially through John Wesley and the Methodists and others, became popularized and, and certainly dominant in many parts of the world to this day. Could you give us uh, just a basic overview of the general beliefs of Arminianism? So in short... Uh, Arminians do not believe that God in eternity past, for no specific reason known to us, chose some to salvation and passed over others for damnation. Rather, Arminians would believe that God created the world with foreknowledge, knowing what would happen, but giving every human being a choice whether they would receive God or reject God. And they would believe that God's grace through Jesus is what's called prevenient grace. It gives everyone the opportunity to say yes or no to God's gracious offer. So salvation is entirely by grace, but everyone is free to choose or reject that grace as opposed to being predestined to receive that grace or reject that grace. So Arminians would believe that human beings are fallen and unable to save themselves, but they would believe that God's grace is there, has appeared to all men. Jesus is drawing all men to himself, and that grace empowers them to be able to believe or not believe. Arminians would also believe that human beings, even as saved human beings, still have choice that they can choose to walk away from God. So they would not believe in what's commonly called once saved, always saved, that once you're in, you're, you're in, or what's commonly called perseverance of the saints, that those who are truly saved will persevere in holiness until the end. If they backslide, it will only be temporary in their return. Arminians would believe that you are kept secure by God's grace as believers, but you can choose to walk away from him. So those would be some of the, some of the differences. Arminians would also believe that Jesus died to make salvation possible for all human beings and uh, then through the cross secures the salvation of those who believe. So in contrast to what becomes the, the five points of Calvinism, T, total depravity, yes, Arminians would say human beings are completely lost without God, but God's grace comes to each one so that we can believe or not believe the gospel. As far as unconditional election, Arminians would say, no, God did not unconditionally elect people before the foundation of the world to salvation. Rather, based on his foreknowledge, he chose some to salvation. And then as far as limited atonement, we would say, no, Arminians would say, no, Jesus did not die only for the elect, Jesus died for the whole world and to secure the salvation of the elect. As for I, irresistible grace, that God will save whom he will save, Arminians would say God reaches out to all, but many have refused his grace. And then as far as the P, perseverance of the saints, they would say that God gives us everything we need to follow him for life, but we can choose to walk away. 
So those would be the fundamental differences. Okay, so what I enjoy about you the most is that you really care about exposition. Even in your, your debate with James White on this topic, uh, really, which, which was a predestination debate, you explain initially that exposition is the most important thing that anybody can do when developing a hermeneutic. So with that being said, you know, Calvinism has Romans 9, Ephesians 1, John 6, and many other verses that they go to and, and attempt to exposit and support their view. And, and they, that they consider foundational passages to their beliefs. What passages do Arminians typically use to support their beliefs with, of course, proper uh, exposition and a proper hermeneutic? So I, I don't say this in a mocking way or in a condescending way towards my Calvinist friends. But for me, it's the whole Bible that speaks against Calvinism. By that, I, I mean this. That throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, God gives us choices to make, and then he rewards us or punishes us according to the choices we make, and he responds a certain way with joy or displeasure based on the choices we make, and at certain times, he commends us for those choices, and other times, he distances himself from them and says, I I had nothing to do with this. I absolutely did not plan for you to do this, but but you went your own way. That whole testimony is indicating something to me in terms of God's heart and in terms of our responsibility. It, it, it to me is, is, again, and I mean no insult to my Calvinist friends, to me it's almost a dishonest reading of Scripture to say that God set everything up, that he ordained what would happen. He ordained the choices that we would make. And then he responds in, in this particular way. Throughout scripture, we choose, 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 choose. And again, it's from beginning to end. It's from the choices that Adam and Eve are given to make in, in Genesis 3. It's to human. It's to God being grieved over our choices in Genesis 6, because of which he destroys the world. Um, it, it is is God commending Abraham in, in, in Genesis 22 for fearing the Lord and reaffirming his covenant to him. Based on that, it's, it's Jesus saying, and, and again, I'm just skipping now hundreds of verses, Jesus saying in Matthew 23, how often he longed to gather Jerusalem and its people together as a hen gathers its chicks under wings, but they weren't willing, the, the leaders weren't willing, so he desired they weren't willing it's it's right through to Revelation 22. Whosoever will, let him come and drink freely. There's a revelation of the nature of God that he desires for all to be saved. And I find this stated in every possible way in the Bible, that God loves the world, that he loves the whole world, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not just for ours, but for those of the, the whole world that he died for each of us, that he died for all of us, that God does not desire anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He, he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn and live. I mean, it's over and over and over and over through the scriptures. So there's this, this whole picture of the nature of God. There's this whole picture of God's interaction with human beings. There's this call to all of us. And there's this picture of Jesus dying for all of us. 
And as I've debated these issues, and Dr. White is a dear friend, and he would absolutely agree with me that we start with Scripture, that we don't come to the Bible with a systematic theology, but rather develop our theology by proper exegesis of the text. That's, that's his creed as well. To me, when I come from the text, I draw a certain understanding of God and of his interaction with us. And that paints a picture for me from beginning to end that is contrary to the picture of Calvinism. And I was a Calvinist from 77 to 82. I, I was quite dogmatic in that, in my beliefs. And it was ultimately being challenged by, by the whole testimony of Scripture that caused me to step back and reassess my Calvinist beliefs. So I'm just curious, just to follow up, um, how, how does a Arminian reconcile the passages that a Calvinist would use, um, like Romans 9? How, how would you wrestle with that? I think it's an important question to ask because most Calvinists hold on to Romans 9 and other passages dearly. And, and I think we should answer to that for those who are considering Arminianism. Sure. Well, what I say is, is read everything in its larger context. I'll come to Romans 9 in a moment. But for example, uh, John 6, before we get to John 6, verses 37 to 30, uh, 44, we have the rest of John's gospel, right? So by the time you get to, to John 6, you realize a Calvinistic reading doesn't work that there must be another way to, to read this because we get right from the beginning in John one, as many as received him to them, he gave power to become the children of God. And we get right through Romans five, Jesus rebuking the religious leaders for the refusal to believe that, that you have these options and they refuse, they refuse, they refuse. And, and then from there, uh, he begins to, to, to teach what he teaches in John the sixth chapter. So you have to, you have to start in the larger context. When it comes to, to Romans, Romans is written in the larger context of the rest of the Bible, which we all agree with. So by the time I get to Romans, I already have a certain view of God. I have a certain view of salvation. I have a certain view of grace by the time I get to Romans. And, and therefore, it's not for me to reconcile Romans 9. It's for the Calvinist to reconcile Romans 9, because the whole Bible is teaching me something else up until that point. So when I come to Romans 9, I understand that the issue there is not an issue of salvation, but an issue of, of service. That's the first thing. That if you look at Jacob, have I loved, and Esau, have I hated, that's quoted there. Well, where is that from? That's from Malachi 1. That's not about the children. That's about the nations. Unless you believe that God has damned every Edomite and saved every Israelite, then, then you can't possibly maintain that exegesis there. It has to do with cho chosen for service, chosen for certain divine purposes. And then how dare we question God on this? How, how dare we resist God on this uh, when, when it's up to him to choose what he wants? And if, if he wanted to choose some for salvation, others for damnation, he has the right to do it because he's God. But now you keep reading. And as you keep reading, and as Paul emphasizes, this is by by faith, not by works. This is where Israel was missing it and the Gentiles were getting in. We go back to Romans 4, 16, where, where Paul says, if it's by faith, then it's grace. So it's not a matter of works or effort. Uh, in other words, a Calvinist would say you're born again and then you believe, where scripture says you believe and are born again, and that belief is a choice you're making, but it's not a work. As you keep reading through Romans 10, you get into the 11th chapter. And what does Paul say at the end? Let's get to the conclusion of the matter. 
God is God is concluded all men in unbelief, Jew and Gentile, that Jew and Gentile, that he may have mercy on all. So God's heart is ultimately that as the Jews resisted the gospel, the gospel that went to the Gentiles, now it's up to the Gentiles to have mercy on Israel, was so that God may have mercy on all. And you say, well, all that means is Jew and Gentile. Well, who else is there on the planet but Jew and Gentile? So I just keep reading, and I understand in context what's being spoken of. Just a couple little things that cause us to read things differently, and we come to very different conclusions. Not only that, I absolutely agree with my Calvinist friends that we bow down to God, he doesn't bow down to us, that we give account to him, he doesn't give account to us, that whatever he does is good and right, and I will worship him as God because he is God and he's always good. Even if it doesn't seem good to me, I will worship him as God. However, as I keep reading scripture, I see that his goodness is reasonable, that we're told repeatedly to praise him because he is good, and then look at the good things that he does. So the reading of scripture, that God had full power to create a world in which he would save every human being, and yet chose to damn some and save others, is a picture that's contrary to the larger picture of God. But again, reading Romans 9, just in slightly different ways, everything falls into place. So as we move forward, we like to connect things back to history and look at, you know, the historical side of uh, these issues. And uh, we just wanted to ask you, you know, where does church history stand on this between Calvinism and Arminianism? Uh, did the early church fathers have inf influential leaders throughout um, that held to Arminian views? Only, only until Augustine, basically. That, uh, again, we base our theology on scripture and then we look to church history and church tradition in a secondary way. But in this case, it's quite interesting that even Calvinists would basically have to say that Augustine in the fourth century rediscovered Paul, the fourth, fifth century, that, that the early church lost sight of what Paul had said. There, there, are, there are books that have been written that survey some of these issues. And, and basically, what you can find plainly is the ideas that are the foundation of, of Calvinism are not found until Augustine. So the, the basic view, I'm talking about if, if you want to be strictly Calvinistic, etc., that the, the basic views that Calvin, Calvinists hold to are not found in any of the church fathers until you get to Augustine. And again, what I learned when I was a Calvinist is Augustine rediscovered what Paul taught, which makes you wonder, how did everybody else lose it? How did the disciples of the apostles and, and their disciples lose it? And it's not like many other issues in the early church where you, you have you know, kind of different ways of saying things and, and clear debate from early on. And, and maybe some of the teaching the apostles is a little foggy with one, a little clearer with another. This is pretty much universally not there in, in, until Augustine. There's a colleague of mine, a theologian, who wrote his, his doctoral thesis at Oxford that John Calvin was only a four-point Calvinist, that John Calvin did not believe in the L, limited atonement, that that's a later development. Now, I'm, I'm not qualified to debate that subject, uh, but simply to say what's just taken for granted as, quote, orthodox or the doctrines of grace was largely unknown in the early church. So 
I watched a video that you put out called why I'm not a Calvinist, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in that video, you noted that it essentially doesn't make sense that God would cause something that grieves himself and then punish a person for that thing. I, I think I don't, and I don't want to phrase yeah. it the wrong way. Right. So, so let's, let's look at this from a few different angles. Okay. So in Genesis 6, we see that God is grieved over the sin of the human race, and he regrets that he made human beings and is going to wipe them off the earth, finds Noah one righteous man, and, and then continues the human race through him. A Calvinist would say that the human race was evil because God ordained it, that even though God himself is not evil, that Adam fell because God ordained that Adam would fall. And that human beings had no choice but to do what they were doing because they were totally depraved and there was no other possibility. So the question is, if if God not only foreknew it, but foreordained it, then why would he respond with grief to it and with anger to it? And then as you keep reading through the prophetic books, as God is rebuking his people, and, and saying, if only you had listened to me, like in Isaiah 48, if only you had listened to me, I, I, I would have done this and this and this for you. Then if God is the one who's not allowing them to listen because he's hardened their hearts, I'm not denying that God hardens hearts in certain circumstances. The scripture is clear on that. But if this was just universal, I was listening to uh, an R.C. Sproul clip the other day just came on during a break in my radio show that that was being played by one of the stations. And he was saying he's never met a Christian who denied God's sovereignty. And yet these Christians turn around and do not agree that God ordains everything that happens. Well, if, if that's a right view of sovereignty, then why does God ordain something to happen and then ex- express uh, himself with, with anger over it, then hold a person responsible, then grieve over it, I mean, think of it like this. You're raising your child, and the way you raise your child, the only possible thing that they could do is is burn down your house and kill your spouse. And, And when you come home and see the house burnt down and your spouse killed, you're shocked. How could this be? And what did you do? And why did you do that? But no, this was inevitable based on how you raised me. I mean, it's a crass illustration, but it gets that point across. Let's look at it in terms of the justice of God. God is going to create human beings whose only possibility is to always sin and reject God. Then he is going to call on them to believe in him, but they are incapable of believing in him. He is going to send messengers to preach to them, to tell them to believe the gospel, But even if they could believe the gospel, it wouldn't apply to them because Jesus didn't die for them. And then he's going to damn them for their sin and their unbelief, which is the only possible thing they could ever do. How was that in conformity with the justice of God as laid out throughout scripture, where God reasons with his people and says, hey, I gave you every opportunity. I cared for you. I nurtured you. You should have done this, but you rebelled and did the opposite. It's, it's not consistent with the nature of God in Scripture. It's not consistent with the justice of God in Scripture. 
it, it would be like me going up to someone uh, with no legs sitting in a wheelchair and saying, walk, get up and walk. And when they don't get up and walk, I, I now punish them for it. It would be ethically similar to that. So the, these, I, I know they sound like, like heavy charges against Calvinism, but I do find these as fundamentally deeply flawed in terms of the nature and justice of God. So when I was, I was thinking about that, I was thinking of a couple examples in the Bible where I think a Calvinist would say that God used these things to glorify himself by glorifying his, his justice or his just side. Um, and this is honestly just something that I am sort of personally struggling with in my mind. And I wanted to get your opinion on these two instances, one being where God in Romans nine speaks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then we know that Pharaoh was put through the plagues because of how his heart was hardened. And so to me, that's, that sort of seems like a paradox almost because it seems like God is causing him to have a hard heart. And then he's punishing Pharaoh for that hard heart. And I've been sort of struggling with that. And then the, the other thing that I've sort of been struggling with lately is where it seems like in the old Testament where God uses other nations to punish Israel or exile Israel. And then in turn, he will punish those nations, even though he used them as punishment for Israel. So it, it may even be totally unrelated, but to me, it seemed related. I was hoping you might be able to help me wrap my mind around those two instances. Oh, yeah. Uh, those are very easily done. Let's start with the second one. God raises up these nations to judge his people, and they go too far. They go beyond what he desires. You have it, for example, in, in Isaiah, the 10th chapter. God raised up Assyria to judge his people, Israel and Judah, and they went too far. And then they arrogantly attributed their power to themselves and to their gods. So God judged them for that. In Zechariah 1, God says, I, I was only angry a little, but you overdid the punishment. You, you add it to the calamity. So it, it would be uh, that I hire you to, hey, listen, I just, I just want you to give this person a little bit of a scare. You know, he's been messing around and, and um, I want you to give him a little scare. And instead you kill the guy. It's like, I, I, I don't want you to do that. You went beyond what I wanted. So that's easily resolved. And again, the, the most clear place where it's laid out is in, in um, Isaiah, the 10th chapter. As for Pharaoh, that's easily resolved as well. Number one, God raised up a particular man for that moment. He raised up a wicked man for that moment. That's, that's in harmony with the best reading of Proverbs 16, 4, that, that everything, uh, God does everything according to its specific purpose. So even the wicked are here for the day of judgment. So uh, we read in Genesis 20 about King Abimelech that, that God did not allow him to sin with Sarah, Abraham's wife, because God saw the integrity of his heart. God saw that when, when he uh, brought Sarah in, he thought that Sarah was Abraham's sister, not wife. So because he did not know he was taking another man's wife and acted with integrity, God saw that in his heart and, and held him back from sinning. So God did not take a godly, righteous man as the head of Egypt and then make him into a monster. God raised up a wicked man for a specific purpose. 
Now, when you study the, the issue of the hardening of the heart, and I have a, a couple of videos, a shorter one, maybe three, four minutes, then maybe a 10-minute-plus video uh, on, on uh, AskDrBrown.org or AskDrBrown on YouTube, ASKDR Brown, about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. When you look at it in Hebrew, uh, it is over and over again. Well, you see, find this in English, that over and over again, Pharaoh hardens his heart before God does anything. Uh, and even when you read Exodus 3 and 4, first God says Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, and then God says, I'm going to harden his heart. And then when you read the account over and over and over, Pharaoh says, no, 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 no to God. When God first acts, the Hebrew is lechazek, which means to strengthen. The first thing God does is strengthens Pharaoh's resolve. Okay, you keep sinning, you keep saying no, you keep refusing me, I'm giving you over to your own desire. And then the next is the chabed, which is to make heavy. This, this is now judgment coming on Pharaoh for his continued sin. And then the, the final, the hakshot, uh, is to make hard. So even there, there is a progression. And here's one other thing to think about. How is it that Pharaoh often hardens his heart? God gives him a respite. When, when God's bringing judgment and Moses intercedes and he gets a respite, then Pharaoh hardens his heart. It's often been pointed out this for, for centuries that the same sun that melts the wax bakes the clay and hardens the clay. It could be by God giving Pharaoh more space that that produces hardness of heart, that God's saying, okay, I'm going to give you a break here, that that only emboldens Pharaoh all the more. But there's no evidence anywhere in the Bible, not one single example, where someone is earnestly seeking him or desiring him. Remember, he requires that of us. Deuteronomy 4.29, to the Jewish people scattered around the world, same in Jeremiah 29.13, if you seek me with all your heart, with all your, with, with all your soul, you'll find me. And then Hebrews 11.6, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Many verses like that in the Bible. There is nowhere where it says that someone was earnestly seeking God, earnestly desiring God, or someone humbling themselves before him and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, like the, the publican, the tax collector in, in the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. No example anywhere of someone saying, God, I want you. I want to serve you. And he says, no, I'm going to harden your heart. No, I'm going to drive you away. So God raises up a wicked man at a specific time for a specific purpose to demonstrate his glory in the whole earth and to bring judgment. But even there, Pharaoh hardens his heart over and over. So we see what kind of person he is. And it's only after that, that God confirms him in his hardness and then judicially gives him over to greater hardness. There's no contradiction there with anything else in the rest of scripture. Well, thank you for that thorough answer. I definitely appreciate it. Um, I guess the next question deserves a thorough answer as well. And that's, can Christians lose their salvation? And if we can lose it based on our works, doesn't that sort of assume that we can earn it or keep it based on our works? Great questions. Number one, I prefer to say, can Christians forfeit their salvation? To say lose would give the idea that I've lost it. I don't know what happened. I lost it. Can we forfeit our salvation? Oh, Absolutely. The New Testament is very, very clear on that. Uh, for, for example, uh, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, 
all give very, very strong warnings to believers, uh, warning against us as believers departing from the faith. Uh, Hebrews 10 speaks of those who sin willfully, so persistent willful sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth that, that we, we now trample underfoot the, the blood of the Son which sanctified us. So you have all of those verses. Uh, you have in 2 Peter 2, uh, not only speaking of the false teachers who denied the sovereign Lord who bought them, but you have later in the chapter speaking of those who were walking in liberty by the knowledge of the truth, but now turn away, that they're like a, a pig uh, going back to its uh, pigsty or, or a dog returning to its vomit. And it would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness. You have Colossians 1, where Paul says that we will be presented holy and blameless in God's sight if, if we continue in the faith. So this is written to believers, if we continue in the faith. You have John 15, that every branch in him, so these are saved people, that does not bear fruit is cut off and, and thrown into the fire. Uh, you have exhortations to persevere throughout the New Testament. The Calvinist would say God uses those exhortations to keep us on the right path. I would say those exhortations are absolutely real. That's why he uses them to keep us on the right path. You say, well, does that mean that we're saved by works? No, we're saved entirely, completely, 100% by grace. But number one, we can reject that grace. There is nothing stopping someone. God does not force us to stay in his house. God does not force us to stay in his family. If we choose to walk away from him and deny his grace and deny him, isn't this what Jesus says? If you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my father and the angels. If you deny me, I'll deny you. Isn't that what, what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, that even if we don't believe, God remains faithful. But if we, we believers deny him, he will deny us. So just as we are saved by grace, we are lost by rejecting grace. Just as we are saved by faith, we are lost by rejecting that faith. So same way we're saved is the same way we can be lost. In addition, salvation is salvation to something. We are saved to obedience to the Lord Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. So there are requirements put on us. If I willfully refuse the lordship of Jesus, that's not a matter of, of works. That's a matter of submission. If I willfully refuse the lordship of Jesus once having served him, of course I forfeit my salvation. So it, it, it's really a very simple thing. And, and interestingly, I was an Arminian not, not knowing every detail of what that would entail, but basically my beliefs were Arminian from when I got saved to around 77. And I never, ever worried about losing my salvation. I, I, I knew God loved me. I knew his spirit indwelt me. I knew his power kept me. I wanted to serve him and please him. I never worried about losing my salvation. When I became a Calvinist, and, and, and I, I wanted to be sure you know, 2 Peter 1, make your calling and election sure. I, I would exam constantly examine myself, and I wanted to prove that there would be no spiritual complacency in my life. And for me, I'm not talking about anybody else, but for me, I had less assurance 
as a Calvinist than as an Arminian. You say, but, but no, as an Arminian, you think you could lose your salvation at any moment. No, that, that's the way it can be wrongly taught or, or, or understood. I totally believe in God's keeping power. It's just like if I'm flying overseas and I fall asleep on the plane, I sleep like a baby because I'm, I'm confident that that plane is going to get me where it's going and I'm a trillion times more confident in God and his keeping power. If I decided to do something insane and crazy and get up and, and try to open the, the door and jump out of the plane to my death, I could potentially do that, but I'm 100% safe there. So for every believer, if you put your trust in the Lord and want to serve him, he's promised to keep you. You don't have to worry about that. His promises are good. No one can pluck you out of his hand. On the flip side, if you choose to disobey and walk away from him, you better fear. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If I ask a Calvinist, do you know, do you know for sure that you are saved? Because the Bible's you know, exhorting us to, to be sure and to know. And I write these things. You may know you have eternal life. And the Calvinist says, yes, I'm sure. Then I would say to him, so it's impossible for you to fall away. Under no circumstances could you ever possibly fall away. And they may give answers like, well, my knowing is different than God's knowing. You know, God is sure of who the elector are. I can't be as sure. And in other words, to be consistent, you can't be 100% sure until you're, you're with him forever. Because if you fell away, it would prove that you were never really saved. And if you say that, oh, I know that I know that I'm saved, then it would mean it's impossible for you to ever backslide, in which case all the warnings have no relevance. So I find far more assurance, far more understanding of grace, far more understanding of God's keeping power as an Arminian than I did as a Calvinist. Again, just speaking for myself. Uh, we just want to end this interview with a question we ask all our, our guests. Um, you know, is this, is this a primary issue of the faith uh, can Calvinists and Arminians live in fellowship with each other at the same church? Yeah, well, we are part of the same church. And I know that each side has excommunicated the other. And each side has had harsh things to say about the other. And Calvinists will certainly feel I, I misrepresented them or was not fair or, or something in this presentation. But ultimately, do we believe that there's one God and one God only who sent his son to die? so that we could have eternal life, that salvation is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we are cleansed by his blood, that we are hopelessly sinful in ourselves and can only be saved by God's grace, and that there's no other way to God except through the Son. Do we believe that? Yes, of course, absolutely. So we are brothers and sisters in Jesus. And uh, I've, I've worked together with Calvinists, only to find out later that they were Calvinists, uh, because it just it just didn't come up. Now, if it is really important to me to be pressing and pushing Arminian doctrine uh, on a regular basis, and you're a Cal or it's just going to come up through my exposition of Scripture, and you're a Calvinist sitting there, you'll get uncomfortable, and it's going to be hard to be part of that same fellowship. Conversely. I had that struggle as an Arminian being in some churches that so strongly pushed Calvinism and, and emphasized it in the songs that they sang that with love and respect for the leaders, I couldn't be part of that church. So it could be difficult on a practical level to all be part of the same congregation if these are major, major issues either way for the leaders, but working together for the gospel, serving together in our communities, 
uh, one of, of the highlights for Dr. White and for me is, is when we get to be on the same side debating others, which we've only done a couple of times, but we would do it all the time. Like he said, it's, it's, it's like uh, uh, two voices and, and one mind because our hearts are so similar in terms of how we think and how we understand scripture and how we respond to certain things. So by all means, we should work together. You know, uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield had a falling out over Calvinism. So Wesley lived 1703 to 1791 and Whitfield who lived 1714 to 1770. They had a falling out over that. Then they reconciled, and, and, but their followers did not reconcile the same way. And the story was told about Wesley and about Whitfield. I heard the same story about both, but when Whitfield died, someone went to, uh, to John Wesley at, uh, at Whit after Whitfield's funeral and said, do you expect to see George Whitfield in heaven? And John Wesley said, John Wesley said oh, certainly not. And this Wesleyan was really pleased to hear it because he had damned Whitfield's soul in his own mind. And Wesley said, he'll be far too close to God's throne for me to ever see him. Uh, well, I had read a similar quote that Whitfield had said something about that during Wesley's life, that he wouldn't see him in heaven because he'd be too close to the throne. So I have great esteem and honor for champions of the faith like Charles Spurgeon, for some of the great missionaries who were Calvinists, for theologians like Jonathan Edwards. And there's much in Calvin's own writings I find enriching and helpful, despite my differences with other aspects of their theology. And hopefully, uh, we can work together. We're in a messed up world, and, and the church, in that sense, as, as much as possible, needs to be one. Yeah. Anything else, guys? No, I just want to say what honor it is to have you on. Um, honestly, just to share my bias a little bit, I've been raised a Calvinist. And, uh, you know, there's always been a stereotype that Arminians lead with their emotions and that they don't take exposition seriously. And to be honest with you, you've literally proven those stereotypes wrong. And I, I totally, I totally want to say how much I respect you. I respect the answers that you give. And you literally give to our audience, whether they disagree with you or agree with you, you give them hope that we can work together. And regardless of the side that you're on, I think it's very important to do what you do. And that is study to show yourself approved and to give answers that are meaningful and biblical. And you've done that. And I want to say that I, I am completely honored to work with you and to have you on. And you've definitely given me some questions that I need answered on my own from my own biases. And I appreciate that. I thank you for challenging um, all of our biases for that, for that matter. And, and I appreciate it beyond words, honestly. Well, I, I appreciate that, uh, the kind words. And look, when I was a Calvinist, in my mind, this was to the glory of God. And this helped me worship God as God and bow down before him. And I know that many Calvinists, that's their heart. They said, look, once I understood that it was all by God's grace, it shattered everything in my, my own perception, and I fell to my face in worship, and I understand that. And some of the great hymns have been written by Calvinists, and I, I quote them to this day. The Puritans were Calvinists, so I, I, I have appreciation. You've got people to like John Piper, you know, zealous for the glory of God in, in the nations. So I have that appreciation. Uh, I think it's so essential, though that we rightly understand each other, that we don't caricature each other. 
and that even where we have our differences that we can respect, okay, for me reading scripture, I can't see this and it presents itself a certain way to me, but I recognize you can come to a different conclusion on, on these texts. And then let's, let's make a difference for eternity. And are there mysteries and certain things beyond our understanding because God is who he is and we are who we are? Yes. And that could explain why sometimes we miss things and sometimes we see things from different perspectives. But let's, let's do what we know to do. Let's be one and let's glorify the Lord and let's walk in humility uh, towards one another. So thanks for the good word and uh, hope that folks will be blessed as they dig into the scriptures even, even more deeply. Dr. Brown, I just want to echo that uh, as well. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of all your answers. And uh, for any of our listeners who also gained a lot from this interview, where can they go to get more uh, information from you? And they get all my info at askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. They'll find thousands of hours of free material, uh, articles, videos, um, audio files, and then uh, my, my books and other resources and info on our ministry school. So askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. And from there, they can connect with us because we're real active on social media too. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it, sir. We really do. Sure thing. God bless you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Hopefully we'll talk again. All right. We got to keep this going. All right. We'll see (laughs) you. All right. Bye, Dr. Brown.